0: Mark Azoulay is an industry leader in psychotherapy and men's mental health. He's helped countless guys get back on their feet, deepen their relationships, and excel in their lives. Now he's taken all that he has learned and is sharing it with you. In each episode, Mark will interview an expert in the field of masculinity and men's work. We'll cover topics such as emotional intelligence, masculine identity, anger management, financial health, trauma recovery, marriage and divorce ethics, and spirituality. Tune in and become a better man. Welcome back to the Men's Therapy Podcast. I'm here with returning guest, Mitchell
1: Adler, and we are pivoting from talking about emotional intelligence to talking about masculinity. Um, Mitchell, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm so happy to talk to, this, talk to you about this because we were in a therapy group together, and I really came to appreciate like your presence in it. You know, and I think really being a masculine therapist is something that is uh, rare in a way. You know, yeah. and I like that you brought your masculinity and your your just like solidity to the group that we were in together. So I'm excited to just kind of riff on that and talk about you know your journey with that. Talk about fatherhood and that's a big, a big important piece for you. Um, yeah, and just get to learn more about you underneath the hood. Sounds great. Yeah, so let's just kind of start from the beginning, right? Like, what does masculinity mean to you? What message did you get growing up? What's your journey been around that?
2: Huh? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I was raised uh, by my father. Well, my parents were married. My father was a hairdresser, so immediately I had an image of a man as uh, probably one of the more, I guess, least masculine identified um, occupations. You know from a stereotypical place mm-hmm. and uh for me my dad was a very masculine man uh he was a big dude powerful he could be strong and loud but he was also kind of soft and kind of sweet and loving as well loved nature loved um mm-hmm. you know being affectionate he was you know was a hugger and would say i love you and so in a lot of ways he i think modeled Some decent masculinity, with the exception of when he would, you know, be in more rageful um, modes, which was like a sort of toxic masculinity that scared the crap out of me. And I think, in some ways, part of my development in my own masculinity was sort of uh, to work against the energy of that like rageful, scary side of masculinity.
1: Yeah, I think that's a story for a lot of guys, right? It's like we experience that from our fathers, or maybe we get bullied, or there's some experience, and it's like, I don't want to be that. You know, uh, I think I forget who coined the term, but the idea that young men have like an anti personality, right? It's like we, we mm. don't know what we want to be, but we know we don't want to be. Right? Yeah. Yes. Either we don't want to be angry, or maybe we don't want to be a coward, or we don't want to be weak, or whatever, right? It's all don't, 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 don't. But there's not a lot of what we do want to be.
2: Yes. Well, and, when I was younger, I was lucky in some way because I was pretty athletic. Uh, so as a young kid, I played a lot of sports. I was played baseball. I played hockey. Um, and I was pretty good. And for some reason, I think that gave me a certain cachet that allowed me to not have to worry about being like enough of a boy. Like I felt very much like a boy. And um, it buoyed me for a while until I hit puberty, or at least I didn't hit puberty, Everyone else hit puberty, and I didn't. So where I was the all- star pitcher baseball player, I suddenly was at twelve or thirteen, was like still pretty small, and everyone else started shooting up. And that changed a lot for me,
1: yeah, how did you make sense of that at that age? Can you think back to what that experience was like?
2: Well, I'd say the hardest time of my growth in my adult adoles- in my childhood was in adolescence, like middle school. Because that's when everyone else started shooting up. They started getting hair on their legs and hair on their face. And I didn't get hair on my legs until I was, I think, 17 or 18 years old. I was the second smallest kid in my junior high class.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. So I went from being like in fifth grade, sort of the kid that everyone looked up to sports-wise and you know would fear me when I'd get on the pitcher's mound, To being in, like, let's say, eighth grade. And I was small. I, you know, I was still athletic. I could still do things, but just the power wasn't there quite like these other guys who, like, sort of bulked up. And uh, I was, you know, four or five inches shorter than everybody else. And uh, that was a hard time trying to figure out, like, who I was.
1: Yeah. Isn't it crazy that, like, as progressive or enlightened or whatever as you want to be, so much of childhood stuff is like literally physicality. Right. It yes. still kind of goes back to like primate
2: rules. <laughs> yes. Well, and what's interesting too is during that time I really started making friends with a lot of females. So mm-hmm. um because I was like I realized like, okay, I'm not gonna like make it with the broy guys as they started like really testosterone out. Um, I, you know, I could code switch. Like, and this is something I've been able to do throughout my life, is code switch sort of different parts of myself. Like I have pretty masculine parts of myself. I'm profoundly competitive. I'm like super competitive, but I also really like to try to contain my competitiveness in ways that aren't like sort of toxic or problematic or like get me into trouble. Um, and I just started moving my energy into like hanging out with a lot of females, which had its own benefits.
1: Yeah, I'm curious about that because I have a a very similar story. You know, my my dad is one of four. He's the only male, has three sisters. My mom is one of four and they're all women, right? I have a sister. So I grew up with a ton of women in my life. And I think I was raised in like a very feminine environment and both the nurturing side and the toxic side, right? So it was a lot of like talking and deep relating, but also like the gossip and the kind of like cattiness, right? It was both. And I found myself, yeah, similar age when you're talking about, way more comfortable with women. Like I knew the feminine code a lot more than yes. the masculine code.
2: Absolutely. I, I definitely would say I picked up on the feminine code. I also have an older sister, four years older, mm-hmm. and my mom and I were pretty close. And uh, I kind of understood, sort of going back to that sort of emotional intelligence language, I really understood emotions. I understood what it meant to be empathetic. And I knew that if I listened to people, they really liked me. <laughs> And uh, yes, yes. <laughs> like I, I got good at learning how to make good relationships, and that was a saving grace for me, uh, during that time because I didn't really have the bro code down as much in junior high, I had the female code down, um, and then it was in like high school. I always had a couple of very good friends, always had a couple of good male friends that stayed with me from like eighth grade and, and earlier, I mean, sorry, eight years old and earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't have like a crew in junior high. And that's hard to not have like a crew of guys when you're really, for at least for me, I identify pretty pretty hard, like cisgender male. Um, you know, in some ways I'm fortunate that I have like a very clear sense of who I am as a man and around my sexuality, I felt pretty clear about that. And so Um, I didn't have to struggle. I had a lot of privilege in that respect that I didn't have to struggle with those kinds of questions, despite the fact that many people thought during junior high that I was gay because I hung out with a lot of, a lot of females. Um, but that never bothered me. I, you know, back in my day, I'm 54. So back then it was still like, really, I mean, I think today and still, it's still a hard identity to hold at times. Um, but back then it was a very hard identity to hold. And so in some ways I, I, I think I navigated that quite well because I just felt very comfortable with who I was and was fortunate in that respect.
1: Right. It sounds like you were able to kind of struggle off any of those bullying or teasing or
2: whatever it was because you knew who you were. Ultimately. Yeah. That's yeah. right. That's right. And and then fortunately had some meaningful relationships that were also helping me insulate anything that would come my way. Because I got I got a little bit bullied. Um, there was this one little guy. He was like five foot. He was the smallest guy in junior high and I I was second second (laughs) and and, and he would bully me, um, uh, which was just ridiculous because I I felt like I I was in a dilemma. I couldn't, I couldn't fight him because if I beat him up, then I'm the jerk who beat up the little guy. And if he beat me up, then I'm the loser who got beat up by the little guy. So I had to kind of like navigate this like torment from this this, like pipsqueak bully, (laughs) Yeah. It, was, it was infuriating
1: it's like battling for last place right you have to kind of <laughs> you're, right. you're, you're you're in a bind there yeah you know I, the name of this um title i want kind of what you wrote of like how to be masculine without being a bro um yeah. and, and i'm curious during this time you talk about that bro culture and that crew you know and there's a great um masculinity writer this guy jack donovan who says that the um smallest unit of masculinity is the gang right? That we are yeah. kind of like evolved to be a, a group or a, you know, a, a squad or a fire team or whatever, right? Like a sports team. Um, so I wonder when you were looking at that, into that bro world, were you, did you feel like you didn't belong or did you feel like you didn't want to play the game or did you feel like you could not win the game? Like, I wonder what the barriers were for you. Yeah. I,
2: I was, I was clear. I didn't fit the game. Yeah. I, I didn't really like the herding of people in general, I really just wasn't into that. And the crews that I saw, like the the groups I could have joined as a, like a, you know, gang, I didn't like the energy of those, of those gangs, so to speak. Uh, And I found that there were more individual people that I could really relate to, both male and female. And I was much more drawn to individuals than I was to a crew. And you're right. I think having a crew really insulates you. It protects you. It gives you a certain amount of confidence. And in junior high, I was more like that individual who could really hang out with lots of different people, but I didn't have that crew. And I think it was like, it just didn't fit my soul. I think I, you know, there were a couple of times I would hang out with a group of guys and I just felt like I could do it. I could fake it, but it didn't feel good. So I found myself more avoiding being a part of that one group. And in high school I found like I found my crew and that was the best.
1: Yeah so, so what was that like? How did you build the crew in high school?
2: Well, it was interesting cuz it was really a lot of us came back together that we were friends in elementary school. Okay. We went to some different junior highs and then we all came back to the same high school and very quickly found each other and we were like, "Wait a second, you're like a good guy." Mm-hmm. And a bunch of us found each other and then we found like some of these, you know, females that we also became friends with and we became this larger group that felt great. And then we had a little riff with the, with the females to the extent that there was drama and, and we and the guys just really sort of bonded. And we had a very good experience. And I'm still very close to these guys to this day, which yeah, has been very fortunate.
1: Do you have a sense, I know you do a lot of like, um, organizational development leadership work. So I want to ask yeah. you, like, do you think like what the culture of that crew was like that you were building or that you were a part of it in high school? Like what were some of the ethic that was there?
2: Well, what's interesting is so, um, so yeah, this, the longer story is that when I was growing up, so my, my, both my parents, neither my parents went to college, um, and I was the first, per- like my sister went to FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology, but I was the first person to graduate from like, you know, four-year university. And, um, I had a chip on my shoulder about not being like smart enough. And, and the guys that I went to elementary school, who I became friends with again in high school were really smart guys. Um, you know, they went to Ivy league schools, you know, and, and, and just really bright. And, I was connecting with them and realizing like, oh, they're smart. They weren't like the most athletic crew, but they were all fine enough. We could play ultimate Frisbee together. We could do pickup stuff. But the energy of that group was like, we want to like talk about interesting conversations. We would talk about sociopolitical issues. And these were things I, I just never thought about in junior high. They were thinking about it and talking about it, but I wasn't part of that crew. And so to me, like it it really opened me up to like intellectual pursuit, social justice kind of thinking, just socio-political thinking. And it was exciting to me actually.
1: Yeah. Just being like, you're all of a sudden open to like a larger world, you know? Yeah. Like,
2: well, the crew, the people I sort of were like peripherally hanging out with in junior high. A lot of those guys were not interested in anything academic and um, they were more interested in kind of breaking rules and doing like stuff, which is fine. I mean, I, I did a little, part of that in my life, but I I got really excited about a group of people who were um, sort of intellectually curious, engaged, they were like, they wanted to do something good in the world. And I got really into that.
1: Yeah, I, I love that, right? Because as we're kind of working our way around and defining modern masculinity, I see that as like a key part, right? Like this idea of being a provider, being a protector for the world, right? Giving back, being interested, showing up, um, kind of
2: having a identity beyond the self. Do you agree with yeah, that? I would. I would. Um, w- what? I, so, yeah, we, um, so I'm Jewish. And um, a bunch of these guys got involved in this Jewish youth group, which mm-hmm. I then got involved in as well. And um, they put on like a theater production. And so I got involved in in theater through that. And then I started finding theater as this thing I got into. And so I started doing theater in high school too. And that really opened up a whole other world to me because I found a way to express myself, be around other men and women, male, female, um, who were expressive and interested and engaged. And it wasn't at all hyper masculine. Um, but I felt like I could totally be myself and I could put, I mean, I played Danny Zuko in Greece and, you know, stuff like that, um, who I could be like the tough guy, but also the soft guy. It was a lot of fun. And so I, I kind of found myself in high school.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it sounds really good. And I had a similar thing in college with well, getting in touch with a lot of like art students, drama students, music students, right? Like where the self-expression and experimentation felt more open for me. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Similarly, like just like the hard and fast broad thing. I think for me, if I'm being honest, I was really insecure. And I felt like if I played the game, I would lose, right? I would lose the athletic game. I would lose the, the girl game, right? Like I just wouldn't be able to measure up. So I, I hid for a lot. Until I met people that had a more expensive definition of what it was like,
2: not just to be a man, but I think just to be a human and to be a young adult, you know? Yeah. Well, what's interesting around that, um, because I can really relate to the part around the losing, what I found really tough, especially with like women Mm -hmm. when I was younger, was that I was very interested in women and I really wanted to um, make that connection, but I would get caught in the friend zone a -hmm. lot. Oh, all the time. Yeah. And I'd be so afraid of being the asshole bro who pushed it into that, like, you know, maybe toxic masculinity or just like objectifying them that I would find myself losing in some way in not taking the risk to move into that more meaningful romantic relationship. And I have a lot of regret about some of those moments, um, that, especially in college. I think that happened a little too much.
1: Yeah, I have some stories too. So we move to our first commercial break and we come back. They yeah. will pick it up there, talk about the friend zone and talk about, you know, this kind of developing of male sexuality or male game for lack of a better term, right? Because I think a lot of guys really do struggle with that. And I think a lot of guys in the younger generations, even more so, because we don't want to be a creep or a, you know, pervert or, you know, something, right? A predator. Um, and yet there is some level of that, that I think is required to to flirt effectively, Um So on that note, we'll pick that back up. Uh, Hang on in there and we'll see you on the other side. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today.
0: Men's Therapy Online is now accepting new members. Men's Therapy Online offers a solution to the lack of outlets for emotional expression positive role models and access to meaningful milestone experiences in our post-covid world loneliness is at an all-time high men need consistent community our society is rapidly changing old models of masculinity are falling at the task of promoting emotional intelligence and meaningful connection men's therapy online offers tools and experiences designed to help the man who is struggling to balance traditional male roles and emotional fluidity Whether you need to get back on your feet or take your life to the next level, Men's Therapy Online has your back. We help our members become a true 21st century man. A man who is not burdened by the rapid change of society, but who contributes to it honorably. If you're interested in signing up and finding your band of brothers, go to menstherapy.online to learn more. That's menstherapy.online. Start your journey today.
1: It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com.
0: You are listening to the Men's Therapy Podcast with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141 or send an email to podcast at therapy.online or visit www.menstherapypodcast.com. Now, back to the Men's Therapy Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Mark Adler, and I'm here with Mitchell Adler, and we're talking about games. We're talking about essentially how men interact with women and some of the struggles that can be there um, and about being friend-zoned. So, Mitchell, take it away. <laughs>
2: Well, I was thinking about, uh, you know, when we took the break, I was thinking about my my father didn't give me a ton of advice in my life, but he did give me one piece of advice. He said, um, if you are interested in a partner, you know, make love to their brain first before Mm -hmm. you make love to them physically, like meaning, like get to know them, um, get to understand them and know what you're doing, like informed consent. Like he was like an incent a consent guy, which I think is just such Good stuff because I think, unfortunately, in our culture, yeah. consent—you know—is something people are starting to like learn more about, but have not learned enough about. And for that um, generation,
1: that's like incredible for your father's yeah. generation to like even have language for that, or to think
2: that it could be different, right? You could actually like respect a woman's opinion.
1: You know, is like a very progressive thought.
2: I I agree, and I, I for him I, I appreciate that because I feel like he did he did he did teach me that, and uh, again. It, it sort of also has the, the backfire if overused because then that's where the friend zone piece would happen. So when I was in college, my freshman year, I had a, a friend I made pretty early, this woman, that I was totally in love with, just totally in love with her. But within the first three times of us hanging out, she had told me that she had unfortunately been sexually assaulted um, in her life. And I became this very supportive, caring friend. And it felt like an impossibility to move from being this person who is very supportive um, into someone that would have a romantic relationship. I just felt like I will be the perpetrator here if I somehow turn what feels like this very supportive, caring friendship into something romantic. And I spent years (laughs) stuck in this friend zone with this person, never, ever having gotten out. Um, I had other relationships with other people, but that to me was like a quintessential experience of the the struggle I have inside myself of wanting to be, quote, the good guy, but also um, in a way having to then abandon some of my own, like, libidinal desire um, that I have as a human being.
1: Yeah, and, and branding that as bad, right? Like, it, it's, it's almost very, yeah.
2: like, Puritan in a way, right? That the fact that
1: you might desire this woman who it sounds like you got really close with. Um, was bad or something to be shameful um, or some like monstrous part of you, right. That had to get cut out.
2: Yes. And, and that, and that fits with because of the kind of person I am and that, you know, I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist. So I, I was, I was bred in a way to learn how to listen and be empathetic and compassionate and all of that. And so I attracted a lot of people and in particular women who would tell me their stories of struggles they've had with men because I was a safe man. And so this inspired me to want to join the Sexual Assault Prevention and Awareness Center at the University of Michigan where I went. And so I was like going out and giving talks on how to raise awareness around how all men could be potential rapists if we're not paying attention to the power we have, the privileges we have, and the impact that we can have. And so that also, I think, compounded a lot of my sensitivity to um, really not being that toxic guy.
1: Yeah. I don't know if that'd be too you know, exposing a question of like, did you get late during that? Like, was there any, Oh,
2: Oh yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah
1: like, or like, how far did you go? Um,
2: no, I mean, but I think I was like, careful. I think I could, have. Yeah. I mean, I, what I, what I did is so I wasn't so needing to have like sexual intercourse. Like that wasn't my thing, but mm-hmm. I really liked kissing and I really liked, you know, touching and having consensual physical intimacy. So yeah, I wasn't looking to, uh, just have sex with e- random people. That kind of wasn't my thing, but I really enjoyed like the the lighter hookup. And I did have plenty of those, but I was, I was very thoughtful about it. And for some women, it was really a turn on for them. And then for the women who, you know, that's not a turn on. They just kind of wanted a guy who's kind of a little bit more bro and it's like, Hey, look, you're hot and I want to be with you. And like, and just, or just, they just initiate the kiss out of nowhere um that was less my style i just didn't didn't do that and i would have had a lot more hookups had i been like that probably but it wasn't my style and i i feel pretty good overall about how much i was able to do but you know there were a few times i i missed out on some things
1: yeah i i have the same thing i think for me it was a lot more yeah it was it was fear and this idea of like being the bad guy you know i think from some of my experiences growing up right my mom had her own uh, cachet of trauma, right. And would often Mm. tell me, or, or she would, you know, in the most inappropriate things, like complain about my dad to me a lot and be like, don't be a man like this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Right. Just a lot of like messaging about what not to do, but not so much about what to do. And Mm. I really struggled with like, especially with women of like how to be with them in a way that came across as attractive and not just fully in this supportive role, you know? Yes. Um, And I I felt like I was at a wall. Like I felt like I I had a lot of that, like uh, approach anxiety, right? Initiation anxiety of going in for the first kiss or making the move or or things like that. Um, Because I was I was terrified of being that like bad man or that like almost like brutish. Like there was I had this like coping thing, like this coping thing of like I was more evolved or enlightened or or something, right? I was like I wasn't this like savage masculine thing
2: out there. That's right. And and that's in a way, you know, using kind of really crude language here, that's a play. A right. play would be like, I'm the guy who's the good guy. I'm the sweet guy. I'm not the guy who's going to, you know, put the moves on you in ways that feel uncomfortable. I'm going to make you feel really safe. And for some women, that's going to work really well. And for some women, they're going to be like, you know, wow, I do not find you, you know, virile and sexy and hot. And I have a desire, like, uh, you know, I go to Burning Man, I, I've been to Burning Man like seven times or so. And I, in the many years I've been going, you know, I, I skip years, so I've been going for like maybe 10, 12, 15 years. And uh, I've explored different parts of myself going there. And the first year I went, I would wear, I wore skirts because it was just flowy and it felt like really free and open. But, but I realized like it didn't capture the kind of like rugged masculinity that I I wanted to. Like portray, and it just I come like the next year and every year since I've really shifted like my whole persona there, because I, there is this part of me that really wants to be a bit of like, like a sexy hot guy, not just the sweet guy. But I love the combo of the two. I like to feel like I'm sexy and I'm hot, and like a woman would want me. But I'm also sweet and I'm tender, and I'm caring, and I'll be there for you but I'm also, I could be tough. Like I can be all of it. And I really like having the dimensionality to it. Burning Man really helped me with that.
1: Yeah. I'm so curious. So what's your Burning Man persona?
2: Well, my, my Playa name is Arrow. Okay. Um, And because like uh, I'm a straight shooter, but I'm like, I can pierce and I'm like solid and I'm dangerous, but I'm also like something that takes finesse Mm -hmm. um, and is agile. So like, that's sort of it. And, cool. yeah. um, yeah, like I have a crew we give out we're, we're the wild stallions of decadence. Okay. okay. Rome, the playa offering decadent experiences to people. <laughs> that sounds glorious. That's awesome. Oh, it's awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> that's,
1: awesome. That's, that, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, and you are talking? I wanted to just throw out this theory and you can let me know what you think about it or maybe how you embody it. You know, with, with the guys that I work with, I used kind of the, um, the metaphor of like the tool belt, right? It's like, you know, guys love tools, love having the right tool for the job. And that can extend into our lives, right? This idea of having that full spectrum of masculinity, just like you said, right? There's times where we do have to be tough and lay down the law, but times we have to also be really tender and be supportive and really comfort our partner or our child or something, right? And there's mm-hmm. times we have to really invoke discipline and do shit we don't want to do. And there's times we have to really invoke leisure and, and try to figure out how to really rest. And I think like, it's about, which I think is a very masculine thing of like seeing the problem and deploying the proper tool um, in a way that like is appropriate for the situation and for the energy of the room. Um, So yeah, I'm curious your thoughts on that and how you've developed that. It sounds like you, you have a version of that for sure.
2: Uh, Oh yeah, absolutely. I really like the idea of, I like how you framed it, especially with the metaphor of the tool belt. Ironically, I'm one of the least mechanically inclined people I know. In fact, we have a handyman in my house right now doing work <laughs> in my house because I'm terrible at it, mm-hmm. um, and I own that. Like, it's such a, it's such a like a stereotype of masculinity, yeah. and I've just come to accept. Like, yeah, I'm not that way, and uh, it's very helpful that I accept it instead of trying to like make you know. it. But, but in in response to what you're saying, I noticed this in sports. So I picked up sports again in my like mid to late twenties. Now I play basketball two or three times a week. I play ultimate frisbee. I play, um, pickleball now is like huge sport for me. And I, like I said, I'm very competitive. I like really like to play hard, but I also really like to be a good sport. And sometimes that's really hard to do, to want to win more than like anything and play my heart out. But then to be able to say good game, to be able to not be a stick on the court when I make a make an errand, like throwing my racket or whatever like I really like to be able to tell someone when they when they beat me like on a move to the basket I'm like dude that was a great move you know there's a little part of me that's like pissed about it that they did that to me but another part of me is like I want to be the guy who can be like dude you got me there like good job and I want to feel like I can feel good about when I do well but not have to stick it in their face Whereas I've played with guys who are, you know, just toxic in that way. Um, and I really don't like playing with people like that.
1: Yeah. What do you think that's from? Like, is it a insecurity or is it just like, you know, the unbridled rage? Or what do you think that that is?
2: Well, there's a culture and in, in a lot of athletics, at least where um, it's all about power, domination, strength, and intimidation. Mm-hmm. And I've fortunately found um, communities of sporting folks like so i have a basketball group where we rent out the high school gym and a bunch of us play there are like 40 of us and we have games going um but i've played on courts where it's all about domination intimidation and like i'm not like i'm 54 when i get hurt i'm out for months and so i don't need some 22 year old guy who's trying to prove his masculinity or prove that he could dominate me you know elbow me in the face because he's going up for a rebound because he wants to get it that is just not worth it for me, but I think it's about a sense of power, um, a sense of domination, and yeah I don't that's not where I need to do it. yeah, yeah.
1: I'm curious what you think about this idea. I think um Jordan Pearson's talked about it recently, but this idea of like hierarchies. Right. And the idea that the world, because of what we're civilized, we have many, many different types of hierarchies. Right. It's not just like the monkey rule of the biggest, strongest monkey wins. Right. Yes. We have intellectual and spiritual and emotional, et cetera. Also, we're talking about. Um, Absolutely. But his theory is that men are hyper aware of where they are in these hierarchies and they do strive to to climb one of them. Right. It's like they do yeah. you kind of have to like speck into something because, you know, there is there does seem to be this almost biological drive to like climb ladders. Do, would you agree with that, or what do you think?
2: Absolutely. And okay. so here's—I think it's perfect because I do know where I stand most of the time. Yeah. For instance, when I play basketball, I play basketball, and when I'm playing with big dudes, they will know immediately I don't want to get hurt, and I, I'm going to be like, "Look, I'm 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 looking to get hurt, and I'm I'm open. I'm five I'm five ten, and I weigh about one fifty five. Not a big dude. I'm wiry. I'm strong for like my physical size." But I'm the first one to admit that like, I'm not going up for a hardcore rebound. I'm going to let someone else get that rebound, but I'll play on the perimeter and I'll run my ass off and I'll play defense really tough. But I already know like, yeah, a lot of these guys are physically stronger. They're physically bigger. And I can live with the fact that I don't have to prove that. I don't have to prove anything about that to people in those kinds of situations. Whereas I think there are there are some guys out there who are trying to prove that they're physically strong. They're physically tough. And that's not my thing. I want to prove that I'm physically agile and I actually can shoot the ball really well and I can play good D. So I do get competitive in that way, but I know where I am on a hierarchy of strength. I know. So that that helps me a lot is I just don't have much to prove there. Right. And,
1: and you have a place too, right? It's like you don't need to mm-hmm. move up or move down as long as you're in your spot because there's some, I think there's like a level of comfort there and a level of just like belonging almost, you know?
2: Yes. Yeah. I've done a lot of owning of my um strengths and limitations in a lot of contexts you know like i own that i like john denver and i like neil diamond like i and barry manilow like i appreciate that music as well as i like can really enjoy eminem and i can enjoy you know bruce springsteen like but a lot of guys would feel like oh, i'm not going to admit i like john denver it's like yeah but i like john Denver. i don't care I, I stand proud, like a John Denver's great. You're dug in from Colorado, you know. That's like our national anthem. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, but I think for a lot of men, unfortunately, yeah. it's hard to own some of those kinds of things. Um, but I, I feel really comfortable enough with my masculinity that I feel like I can own a lot of um, pieces of myself that I think a lot of young men these days struggle with.
1: I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I definitely get that sense from you. Um, I, I, I want to pivot a little bit to fatherhood um, and this mm-hmm. idea of male nurturing and male love right yeah. and maybe how it might be different than feminine love or what it's like to be a father because I think yeah kind of for a lot of those tough guys it's it's difficult to all of a sudden really be in a caregiver role right like mm-hmm. as a father you are a caregiver for these little beings um, and I know yeah. that fatherhood is something that's a very important part of your identity
2: it is yeah um, well I can't start with fatherhood without starting with my wife. Mm-hmm. who I met, um, over 29 years ago on, on December 2nd, we, um, celebrated our 29th SHM anniversary, which is the anniversary of when we first started dating. Um, so I've been with this woman for 29 years and she has been just a, a super human in my life. Someone who has really, um, I think appreciated me for all of the masculine and, um, you know, I don't know what to call the non-masculine, but just like the full range of my masculinity. Um, I've always felt very good about who I am as a man in, in with her. And that's been great. And uh, yeah, I have two daughters um, and they're now in like 20 and 17. Uh, but raising my daughters has been one of the most profound experiences around being a man. I mean, I, I knew I wanted to be a dad when I was five years old. Uh, I actually remember the moment when I thought like, I want to be a dad, and I want to be able to do it in a way that was a little bit different. I think than the way I was fathered. As much as I love my dad and I have a nice relationship with him, there were ways he fathered that I really think could have been done differently. And I've like was committing my life at five years old to doing that differently. And I will say that I feel you know probably the the thing in my life I feel most proud of. And when you say like you know the hierarchy thing, like where do you? you know, to get that confidence in yourself. The one thing I feel like I know I've done really well um, or well enough is I think I'm a good dad. Certainly a good that's enough dad. I mean, I've fucked up plenty of times, but um, yeah, and I'm happy to talk as much as you want about being a dad.
1: Yeah, that, that's that's beautiful. And talk about like a full completion, right? From five years old to now of like really realizing a dream. Um, we're going to move to our final commercial break. When we come back, I want to dig into this topic a lot, especially the idea of, you know, what you think masculine love is um, and how you can apply that to to a child, you know? Um, So when we come back, we'll dig into that topic. Hang on in there and we'll see you on the other side. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts
0: men's therapy online is now accepting new members men's therapy online offers a solution to the lack of outlets for emotional expression positive role models and access to meaningful milestone experiences in our post-covid world loneliness is at an all-time high men need consistent community our society is rapidly changing old models of masculinity are falling at the task of promoting emotional intelligence and meaningful connection Men's Therapy Online offers tools and experiences designed to help the man who is struggling to balance traditional male roles and emotional fluidity. Whether you need to get back on your feet or take your life to the next level, Men's Therapy Online has your back. We help our members become a true 21st century man, a man who is not burdened by the rapid change of society, but who contributes to it honorably. If you're interested in signing up and finding your band of brothers, go to menstherapy.online to learn more. That's menstherapy.online. Start your journey today. It's your world.
2: Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com
0: You are listening to the Men's Therapy Podcast with Mark Azale. To reach the show today, please call 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or send an email to podcast at men'stherapy.online or visit www.men'stherapypodcast.com. Now, back to the Men's Therapy Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the show. Uh, we are talking with Mitchell Adler, and we're talking about fatherhood and masculine love. Um, so I think it's a topic that I wish there was more talk about, right? Like what it means to be a male care- caregiver and still and do it like a man, I guess, for lack of mm. a better term, you know, because I do think the polarity between the feminine and masculine energies is what creates a full upbringing for a human, Um mm. So I think there is something very unique about a masculine love. Um, so I'm going to kick it over to you, Mitchell. What are your thoughts on that, on
2: masculine love? Yeah, it's hard It's hard to know exactly what, what we mean when we say masculine love, other than the fact that I'm a man and I do a lot of loving. Right. Um, so, you know, I do believe, I believe a lot in love in that I've used before the idea that like love is like a candle where you can you can give it away and it doesn't diminish. You can light like a million candles with one candle and it doesn't diminish your flame. So I just think if you have love inside you, like give it away, like just give it because it doesn't diminish. It only like increases the light around you. So, um, you know, as a, as a, we can talk about it as a dad or as, um, well, how about this? So when my first daughter was born, uh, I had a baby naming ceremony in my backyard and we had some friends over and this one guy came over to me and he said, you seem like, and I just moved to Davis, California where I live. And he said, you seem like the kind of guy that would want to be in a men's group. And I was like, yeah, I am the kind of guy that would want to be in a men's group. And I'd never been in one before. And so he and I, um, decided to start a peer led men's group. Uh, and so we picked some guys and for the past 20 years, we've been meeting twice a month for two hours. Uh, As a men's group where we are there to support each other, bear witness to our uh, lives, to challenge each other around our blind spots about who we are, to explore who we are as men, uh, as parents. All of us are parents. Um, All of us were married. Some are divorced now, um, but most are married still. Uh, But we have really it has been. First of all, I absolutely love these men. These men have helped me to really um, understand a lot more about the breadth of what masculinity is. Um, They're not like crazy masculine manly men, but they're also like, you know, solidly men. Uh, And so it's just been really helpful for me in watching them raise their kids as I raise my kids and exploring all that goes into stuff like that. Yeah, I
1: I love that, obviously. I mean, I'm in my own men's group. I run men's groups and I always use like the metaphor of like the lodge, you know, which most cultures had a version of like a men's lodge or a men's hall or something like that. A space where, you know, after men were doing their missions of the day, whether it be hunting or farming or, you know, craftsmanship or whatever, right? They would all gather and they would just just talk, right? Um, And they would have Mm -hmm. conversations about life or about the town or about society or whatever was going on. And I feel like, You know, it's a little proselytizing, I guess, but like as men, we don't really have that or our version is like Twitter or something, right? Mm. Like it feels like more complainy and less connective. Um, And a lot of men, I think, are really alone because we go, we still do our missions. We go out in the day and do our jobs and go through trials and tribulations, but we don't have like a a lodge to come back to um, in a way that we can debrief with other guys.
2: Yeah, it's really unfortunate that there aren't more institutionalized ways that this exists. I've certainly spent a lot of time developing this in my life, both in the men's group I just described. And I also have like small crews of men. I have like a golfing crew, guys that I go out with. I have my basketball buddies that will go and have a beer like twice a month on a Friday after work or, you know, whatever it is. I have like, I've really developed these groups of men in my life that I feel very close with. I still have female friends as well, but as I've gotten older, it's a little bit different. I don't have, I'm in a consultation group and it's three women, four women and me. Um, uh, But uh, generally I'm, I surround myself with these pockets of men to uh, do, you know, to help the different parts of my masculinity and identity emerge. You know, Mm -hmm. I I do a lot of different stuff with the basketball buddies I have a beer with than the guys that I are in my men's group. and I really love the kind of flexibility of all of that.
1: Yeah. It's kind of go back to that tool belt thing, right? You get to like hone and sharpen your tools with these different guys. Um, yes. similar, like I've like my outdoor buddies where we do these, you know, backpacking adventures. I got my gym buddies um, and then I have a men's group, right? Something that's a lot more like emotional and deep. Um, and I think, I think as men, like, you know, for good or for, for bad, like we compartmentalize, I think our brain works in like compartments. So it's helped me to have a compartment of emotional intimacy, right? It's like, okay, Mm -hmm. I go here and I do emotions for two hours, right? It has a start time and an end time, and then it's good. Um, But it keeps me, you know, continuing to dip my toes into those waters.
2: Do you think you wouldn't wouldn't go there as much if you didn't have those places?
1: I think that there would be, I, I think both. I would not go there or I would go there at inappropriate times. I think would be the thing, right? Like, I, I think my tendency would be to bottle things up or to push things away, kind of like an avoidant attachment. And then it would come out um, in more of like either an explosion or like an incident or some, you know, half cocked conversation, you know. So so with my guys, you know, a lot of it, especially in a relationship, a lot of it now is like thinking about ways to speak to my partner, and like figuring out how I feel about certain issues in a place that I feel safer. So then I can then bring it back into my real world, right. Bring it back into my, you
2: know, growing family um, in a way that is productive instead of it just like coming out all weird. You know? Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me because yeah. that I did a lot around parenting. You know, yeah. um, I was, I'm the youngest person in my men's group, not by a lot for some, but, um, but I'm the youngest and all of them have, kids. So I would talk to them about all the dilemmas that come up around raising kids. And, you know, I'm sure there's something about raising, do- uh, about sons. I, I have two daughters, so I don't know what it's like to raise a son, but with daughters, you know, uh, having, having places to talk about what it means to have a daughter and to be there for them and to support them. And, you know, there's a classic thing where men, when adolescent girls, become adolescents a lot of fathers can pull away from their daughters because they can get afraid of that sexual energy and what that means and you know i learned through them and through reading and through just my own instincts that like i'm staying connected to my kids and i can support them in their development in many ways and um it's just been so essential so i really relate to what you're saying about going to an environment that can be supportive and help us make sense of things that are confusing to us and then bring it back to the environments that we can you know really use it effectively yeah just kind of like threading in and out you know um yeah
1: so so i'm curious like with your daughters right what are some of the ways that you do support and love them what are some of the ways that you've honed and practiced over these years
2: well for me it's all about the relationship so my wife and i have um we met actually directing i directed a countywide youth program in marin county like many many years ago and we met through that program like she was also working in that world and so we we work together with kids, and the whole my whole philosophy with um, with kids was always like it's about the relationship. And so, my wife and I really have never we don't really punish. <laughs> it's weird, like we didn't ever have had timeouts. We didn't really punish our kids. What we would do is we would talk to them and and be in relationship with them and talk about the impact of behaviors on on them, on us. And we've just kept such an incredibly open space for us to talk about everything that um, we're just in relationship. And sometimes that's hard. You know, sometimes my kids have hard things they want to talk about. Sometimes they're angry with us and we are always wanting them to tell us when they are angry with us, just like a good therapist, you know, like we want there to be dialogue. So we just work our asses off and I work my ass off to just be available. And when they don't want to talk, they get to not talk. You know, I, I let them have their space, but I don't let it go without my checking in. Yeah. So I'm always, you know, paying attention and just from like, when they were little, I was like getting on the floor with them playing pretty, pretty princess dress up. They would, you know, do whatever they wanted to me. And I just like, I do dishes in front of them. Cause I, that's what I do. I do the dishes because I'm not the best cook and I'm, you know, cleaning the house. And I model being like, I think a progressive conscious man. Uh, and I think they respect me for being like someone who respects my wife. She respects me. It's all mixed in together. I respect them as human beings. And I've always tried to do that the whole way through.
1: Yeah, I really like that. And and to pick up on a piece of what you said, I love the like accountability part and the truth-telling part. You know, because I see those as, as extremely masculine qualities, the idea of like naming the thing that no one wants to name. Right. I mean, think of courage. Right. I mean, that's like it's like charging into battle with your eyes open. Right. Being like, yeah, we need to talk about this thing. I need to like create space to talk about it. Um, and it just yeah, I touched on when you think of your daughters don't want to talk. I imagine as a part of you where you're like, OK, I just want them to know that they that you see them and that you love yeah. them and that you're there. That's what's yeah. more important often than, you know, resolving the issue. But being like, right. Yeah, and then I'm going to check there. in
2: again. I'll check in again and you can continue to say you're not ready, but I might start to tell you that I'm having a reaction to the fact that like, it's been three days and we haven't talked about something that's really important and like you matter to me. And there's something that feels like we're, we're struggling here. And so unless we talk about it, we're not really going to seemingly get through this. A lot of things can just get blown off. Like, you know, but if there's something that lasts for more than two days, Mm -hmm. you know, we really, we, uh, our family, I mean, I don't think we've ever really gone more than two days uh, three days at a max with us having a tension that does not get addressed. That's incredible. <laughs> I, mean, well, I just, I don't, I don't know how to live. I, don't, I, I mean, yeah, I mean this in a real yeah. sincere way, Mark, like I don't know how yeah. to live with a kind of tension like that. Um, wh- what that means is like, they still have the right to their privacy and they still have mm-hmm. a right to be irritated with me, but it's like, I have some sense of what it is. And then I have to accept, all right, this is something I can't control. I mean, my kids have struggled with life struggles that like, I can't control And all I could do is be there for them. And I have to accept that, like, this isn't one of those things that I can do other than just they know I'm here. But now at least I have a sense of what it is. And that's all. That's what I mostly just need.
1: Yeah. You know, I I totally get that. And I'm just thinking back to, you know, to my family. And I imagine most families, there's tensions that have existed for decades, right? Like it's just stuff that never gets talked about or stuff that is kind of always whispered or or in the background or something. So that's why I'm sitting here with my jaw on the ground of like, it's... I. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, selfishly, I guess. Like, it would be very healing for me just to know that the thing is named. That, like, even if it's not resolved, yeah. like, at least everyone knows there's tension instead of what I think happens in a lot of families and certainly in mine of like pretending everything's okay,
2: right? But, well, but, but we're, you, not gonna you, ta- we're not going to we're not going to go there, right? We're not going to go to that closet, exactly. And we'll get. I'll give you one good example. My um my oldest daughter is studying abroad this mm-hmm. year, and. uh we were trying to figure out financially how we were going to like work out like money she gets and doesn't get. What's good? What is she paying for? What am I paying for? And, you know, I grew up in an environment where money was a really vexed problem in my family system. And I've struggled in my life with knowing, like, how much do I pay for things for my kids versus make them work for it? And, you know, I'm blessed to have some financial resources. So, like, I could pay for a lot more things for her, but I want her to learn how to do it. And at one point, you know, as I'm sort of trying to figure this out with my wife, but I like, this is more my issue than it is my wife's issue. My, my daughter like looked me in the eye and she was like, you are fucking with me here. Like, this is fucking me up. What you're, what you're trying to figure out about your relationship with money and me is fucking me up. And I just had to be like, shit, she's right. Mm -hmm. Like I am caught in something that I'm working through that I am not, I don't have it and so i had to defer in a way to my wife I mean like i need help i need help to know like the reality testing around what should we be doing here because i was too she was getting sucked into my unresolved issue around money in her and it was very eye opening for me and i really like we both started crying my daughter and i because i was just like so thankful that she could tell me that yeah and yeah. that uh and i don't want to do that to her and I want to like empower her to feel like she can always speak up for herself when she feels like someone isn't understanding her. It was like a painful and profoundly um, kind of heartwarming and rewarding experience, even though it was painful.
1: Yeah. But, but it, it's a culmination of all the work and parenting that you did up to that point that like you said, she felt safe enough and clear enough to be able to do that with her, with her dad on oh, no less, right? Like be able to kind of yeah. jump the power structure and give you that feedback.
2: Yeah. And hopefully we can stop the intergenerational trauma yeah. around like this finance stuff, because it's much more in the open now. And and it hadn't been because I don't think it really had like this, this abroad thing really like brought it to a head. And uh, I'm, I'm glad for it, even though I think it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a process. What did you end up doing? I'm just curious, like, how did you resolve it? Uh, well, we resolved it by saying, let's stay in dialogue around it. Let's stay in open dialogue around it. And and the reality is is I'm going to, I think, support her a little bit more financially. She is the most responsible kid. And I'm sitting here treating her in a way like she's not, by yeah. saying, like, I I want you to have, I want you to learn this skill. She's like, Do you not think I learned this skill? She was like, had a job at Starbucks in high school when she didn't need to. She got into UCLA. She's like done all this. She works like three jobs at UCLA because she believes in the value of money and like doing that. I'm like, yeah, what the hell am I thinking that I'm not seeing that? Cause like, right. what do I need to show you that I I respect money? And I'm like, you're fucking right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you she already learned right. lesson. Yeah, 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 yeah. She knows. Yeah, she she learned her lesson. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, do- now I did to learn my lesson. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now I've come full circle. Yeah, it's yeah. good. It's yeah. good.
1: So we gotta wrap up here, but I feel like we could go for another hour or so. Totally. Um But Mitchell, people want to learn more about you or work with you. Where can they find you online?
2: Yeah. So, um, you can find me at Mitchelladler.com. It's Mitchell with one L it's all one word. Um, so you, you at the beginning, Mark said that um, we were in a therapy group together. I just want to correct that we were in a training process group together. Um, and so I run training process groups as well as uh, psychotherapy groups. If you're in California, I could see you for a psychotherapy group, a therapy group, but if you're across the country and you're a mental health professional, I can see you for a training process group which is a different kind of beast. It's a, it's not a therapy, but it's has therapeutic effect. fact. Um, yeah. And I also do like um, organizational speaking and things like that. So if people want to find me, you can find me there.
1: Great. And all that stuff will be in the show notes for y'all listeners to click and learn more about Mitchell. So thank you all for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Another episode of men's therapy podcast.
0: Thank you for joining your host, Mark Aguilet on the men's therapy podcast. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and anywhere podcasts are found. To support the show, leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information or to apply to be a guest, visit www.menstherapypodcast.com.